everyone. Um, last night uh, at our Saturday night service, just to, to fill you in on what was going on here, we've, we commissioned our um, youth mission trip teams. We, had, uh, we have about 100 students going out to uh, three trips to the high school and one through the middle school. The middle school is going to Chicago and the high school groups are going to uh, Dayton, Ohio to work with African refugees. Um, the Dominican Republic to build uh, three homes there and then to Cochabamba, Bolivia to do some construction work and also ministry in the community. So uh, love, appreciate your prayers for those teams as they go out later on this summer. Well, I was 10 years old living in my hometown of Austin, Texas when my mom uh, read in the newspaper that they were doing a production of Oliver at the community theater not too far from our house. And I had done a few shows uh, through my church, but had never done anything like this before. And so I thought, oh, this would be fun. It'd be fun to audition for, for this. So we drive down to the theater, and, and my feelings going into the show were, I just, I just want a part in the show. It would just be great if I could just be cast. I, you know, I'm surely not going to get a big part or anything, but if I can just be like that, that, that kid in the back row, it would just be fun to be in a show. Um, so I audition, and I get a callback. And uh, at the callback, they start reading me for the role of Oliver. Now, this is surprising for two reasons. One is that I've uh, never been in a show before. Secondly, it's because as a 10-year-old boy, I was kind of a round child. Uh, I, I believe the word was husky that they used. The, the, <laughs> The jeans came in slim and regular and husky, and that was the ones that, that my mom bought for me. So, and the whole premise of the show is that it's this boy in an orphanage who isn't treated well and isn't, you know. And so the idea that I had, it was clear that I had not missed a whole lot of meals, right? So I didn't get it, but at the same time, you know, it's a musical. People start singing for no apparent reason, right? There's, there's some... Suspension of disbelief that's happening the whole time you're sitting there. So if you got this kid, it, I didn't worry about that. The bottom line is, I might be Oliver. So I go to the callback, and uh, I sing Where is Love, and I mean, I just nail that thing. And I happened to notice on the director's notepad that there's a star by my name. Well, that's all I needed. The next day at school, I am floating on air because I think I, think I got this. I think I'm actually going to be the lead in this show. So I get home that night, that afternoon, and I, I make the phone call to the theater. And uh, they say, yes, we are happy to inform you that you have been cast in the role of Charlie Bates. I said, thank you very much. I, yes, I accept the role. I hung up the phone. And I found out later that not only had I... Uh, not gotten the role of Oliver, but there were three of us reading for Oliver. The other two kids were double cast as Oliver. I was the only one. I get the, I get, you know, Charlie Bates has two speaking lines, two words each. So that's the contrast there. So I hang up the phone and I handle it like any normal, well-adjusted 10-year-old would. I grabbed my Oliver songbook and I began ripping it up and throwing it all over the house. Just your typical, normal, songbook tear up freak out you know just the normal so I did calm down and tape the pieces uh, of, the, of the songbook actually back together before my mom got home but why did I do that well it's because if you had uh, because my expectations had changed right at the beginning if you had told me 
that I was going to have a speaking role, I would have been thrilled. But halfway through the process, my expectations had shifted, and now I was disappointed. Just to close the loop on this, last summer, they did a production of Oliver at the local theater here in Lake Forest, and I once again was not cast as Oliver, but I handled it a lot better this time. You guys would have been really proud of me. Um, and I, I was able to do the show with my two youngest kids. We had a great time. I share this story because when your expectations are high and they aren't met, it can be devastating. When they're low, you're happy. Well, our passage today deals quite a bit with the expectations of certain people about what God should or shouldn't be doing. And he, Jesus makes a statement very early in this passage that will be illuminating as we move forward. He talks about John the Baptist and his relation to the kingdom of God. So we're going to read the passage found in Luke 7, starting in verse 24, and then we will get into it. Luke 7, 24 through 35. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes, God's purpose for themselves, because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Well, there's three points I'd like to make from this passage today, and they're framed up through the concept of the kingdom of God, which we'll talk about in just a bit. First is that life in the kingdom of God is greater than anything that preceded it. Life in the kingdom of God begins with repentance, and life in the kingdom of God is different than what you might have expected. So first of all, life in the kingdom of God is greater than anything that preceded it. Jesus makes a statement that the least in the kingdom is greater than John. Why is that? Is it because Jesus doesn't think highly of John? Absolutely not. It's because Jesus is so high on the kingdom. So let me pause a bit and talk about John very briefly. Who's John the Baptist? No, he was not the founder of the Baptist Church. Uh, it's, it's actually probably better translate, translated that he is John the Baptizer. He was known as that because he was famous for baptizing people. Interesting guy. He wore camel hair, uh, ate locusts and honey. He was known as an ascetic, that is someone who believed in denying oneself. He was not uh, the life of the party. He wasn't able to just sort of chill out and let things go. He was, uh, uh, I, I believe the technical term is out there. He was, he was sort of out there. He was out there similar to other biblical prophets. 
And he got himself in trouble and later killed because he was not afraid to be outspoken, to speak his mind. And he had a very important role in the story of the coming of Jesus. He is discussed as the one who came before. And he was known as John the Baptizer because he called people to be baptized as a sign of their repentance. That is, of their desire to turn away from sin and to turn towards God. In fact, Jesus himself came to John to be baptized. And he's an extremely important person in the biblical story because we see in John a transition from a focus and an emphasis on law to an emphasis on grace. Jesus praises him, saying there's there's no one greater than John. He's the best. And yet, he uses this very interesting phrase. He says, yet the one who's least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So, we're going to have to stop and figure out what what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he talks about the kingdom of God? Put simply, the kingdom of God is the rule of God. It's his rule, his reign, his authority. It's the fact that God is now entering time and space through the person of his son, Jesus, and is now exercising his right as the creator of the universe to rule over it. So that when we pray, thy kingdom come, in the Lord's prayer, we're asking that God would reign. As one commentator puts it, he says that God would manifest his kingly sovereignty and power, would put to flight every enemy of righteousness and of his divine rule, that God alone may be king over all the world. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, he comes saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or is among you or is near. This is what Jesus came to bring. And sometimes evangelical theology sometimes boils it down to say something like, Jesus came so that people would accept him as their Lord and Savior ignore him for the bulk of their lives and then see him in heaven. That's sort of the basic message. And that is not, in fact, the truth. The the gist of Jesus' message when he came was he said that the kingdom of heaven is here. It is among you. And so that people knew that Jesus had authority to say that, Jesus came with power. He came as someone who had authority to be the king. He came and raised people from the dead, the, the sight received blind. Uh, you, you know what I mean. Blind received sight. Um, and that's the reality that we live in now, if we're bold to receive it. God is ruling here now in our midst. Not in the way that it will be like one day, right? So we don't fully understand, we don't fully experience the kingdom of God Like it will happen one day when Jesus comes to rule completely. We are in the middle, as has been described, as between the already and the not yet. Kind of like a a morning at dawn. So at dawn, there's light. The darkness is present, but the light is unmistakable. And so... That is why even the least of us, the least person in the kingdom of God, is greater than John. Because as fantastic as John was, he was still operating as a member of the Old Covenant. He understood more than most because of his emphasis on repentance, which we'll get to more in a minute. But he didn't have the perspective that we have now, the new kingdom that Jesus was bringing John did not know Jesus as a crucified and risen Savior. You can. 
John did not know the forgiveness of sins that was accomplished on the cross. You can. John was not a part of a community where the Spirit of God was at work in a powerful way. We all can be. First Peter says something similar to this. He says, Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, and they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. We sometimes think that living now, we don't have it as good as some others. Like, man, if I, if I had a burning bush like, like Moses did, that would really be something. I'd be better off. Jesus says no. No, you're not. John is better than Moses, but you're better off than both of them. That is something. And there's much more that could be said about the kingdom of God, much more that Jesus said. He spoke about the kingdom of God in parables. But uh, that's enough for now. It's so important to understand. Life in the kingdom of God is greater than anything that preceded it. Number two, life in the kingdom of God begins with repentance. So we've got this parenthetical comment. It's only parenthetical in our Bibles. There's no parentheses in the, in the original Greek. But... Luke is giving us a clue here into some of the background. He says that the people listening agreed with what Jesus was saying, that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. And what was the deal with John's baptism? Well, it was a baptism of repentance. What does that mean? The definition is really best summarized by the language that we find right here in the text. That is, they acknowledged that God's way was right which is a very helpful shorthand definition for repentance. The way that my sinful heart wants to take me is wrong, and God's way is right. So the, the obedience of those who had been baptized is contrasted with the unwillingness of the Pharisees. For them, this act of baptism was beneath them. You can imagine them saying, okay, you, you want me to walk into some muddy river with this hippie lunatic? Yeah, I don't think so. I'm a Pharisee. We don't do that. Well, even for those of us who have been baptized and have repented, we realize that it's so much more than just a one-time event. And it doesn't always get easier the longer uh, that we're walking with God. Sometimes it can get harder. For some of us, when we initially put our faith in God, we're not totally ready to acknowledge that God's way is, is right. In fact, we're still pretty excited about ourselves in the whole matter. And there can sometimes be this emotional experience where we're, we're so excited that God is with us rather than being aware that the heart of following God is saying, God, it's not as much as that you are with me as much as that I want to be with you. I submit myself completely to your will. I read something recently that helpfully illustrates this. Author Marianne Williamson says that when you ask God into your life, you think he's going to come into the metaphorical house of your life, look around, and see that you just need a, a new floor or, or better furniture, and that everything needs just a little cleaning. And so you, you go along for the first six months thinking how nice life is now that God is there. 
And then you look out the window one day, and you see that there's a wrecking ball outside. Turns out that God actually thinks your whole foundation is shot, and you're going to have to start over from scratch. We can't get stuck thinking that God is some nice add-on to our perfect lives, that he has some helpful tips that will make our nifty lives just a little bit niftier. Turns out that God says, I, I love you, and because I love you, I've got a wrecking ball of love that is waiting to help you start over, and if you'll trust me, I'll build you into something that you never dreamed you could have, but both in this life and in the life to come. And that's what the Pharisees were missing. They were using God as their own means to greatness. God existed for them and not the other way around. Their expectations for life were, were totally bound up in themselves and not in God. So repentance is an absolute must. And, and it's tricky because it's easy for us to fall into denial about it. We can go through the motions of repentance and not actually repent I grew up going to a church where we said a prayer of repentance every week. And we could all say it here together. But just saying a prayer together isn't enough. There has to be some action behind it. <laughs> prayer is, is, is important. Baptism of repentance. Baptism, which we'll have later this summer, August 10th. Baptism is so important as an outward sign of your of your repentance and of your trust completely in Jesus. But we have to be willing to take action. So if we're trying to get out of a pattern of sin, we have to be willing to, to be accountable and to do something. We have to take action. And some of you are, are, are looking for, for some, you're, you're, you're kind of waiting for something. You're like, you know, I'm looking for a sign. I'm looking for, you know, a sign. Well, here, here's your sign, okay? There it is. Here it is, right here. This is your sign. Repent. You showed up at church and the preachers had a, you know, talked about repentance. This is your sign. Don't wait any longer if you are stuck in a pattern of sin. And you know, you know there's something that you want to get out of. And you just are waiting. Let this be the moment. Let this be the moment that you do that. So. Life in the kingdom is greater than anything that preceded it. It begins with repentance. And number three, life in the kingdom of God is different than what you might have expected. I'd like to show you just a one-minute clip uh, that captures this little parable very well. This little parable that Jesus ends the passage with. Uh, it's from fantastic movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, and it's Veruca Salt, she's just told everyone that she wants one of these golden geese that lays the golden eggs. And then she goes off on a little musical tangent about what else she wants. This is just the last portion of her song. Here it is. I want a party with roomfuls of laughter, 10,000 tons of ice cream. And if I don't get the things I am after, I'm going to scream. I want the works. 
I want the whole works. Presents and prizes and sweets and surprises of all shapes and sizes. And now, don't care how I want it now. Don't care how I want it now. <laughs> He was a bad egg. <laughs> so hold that picture of Veruca Salt, the bad egg, in your head for just a moment. Jesus goes on to compare the people of this generation to children sitting in the marketplace. And he quotes from what apparently was a kind of nursery rhyme of the day. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't cry. For, he said, John came as a teetotaler, and... People said he has a demon. Jesus came as a party animal, and they said he's a, a drunkard and a friend of sinners. He says that this is emblematic of the generation. This is known as the parable of the brats. And it's interesting because it's the only time that Jesus uses children not as a positive example. So 11 chapters later, for instance, he says that we won't enter the kingdom of God unless we change and become like a little child. Well, I don't think he had Veruca Salt in mind. He doesn't want us to become like that. Children have this sense of, of, of simple trust and, and wonder. And, and, and that's what he wants us to emulate. But, but children also can be selfish. They can have some serious attitude. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that our generation can very easily become like bratty little children who want to play both sides. Nothing is ever good enough for them. We become Veruca Salt. In another part of the movie, Veruca says, I want a boat just like this one. And then later she takes a ride on and she says, Daddy, I do not want a boat like this one. She wants this, then she wants that. Well, Jesus is indicting the religious leaders, telling them, you always find something to criticize. You criticize John because he's too strict. You criticize me because I'm too loose. John needs to relax. I need to stop hanging out with sinners. And that's the danger, when we don't fully submit our hearts to God. And a relationship with God can start to look like this attitude. We can very quickly become like Baruch Salt if we aren't willing to submit to life in the kingdom of God the way God has designed it. We can become overly critical and think we know what we deserve. Or we know what God's kingdom is supposed to look like instead of receiving the kingdom like a trusting little child. And it's sometimes very hard. And especially, I think, sometimes living where we live and living where we are so used to being comfortable. Life can be so easy so often. And so especially early on in our relationship with God, like the, the wrecking ball analogy that I read earlier, we think, hey, having God in my life is great. So based on that, we set up these expectations in our hearts that following God is fun. Following God is, is easy. It's simple. But Jesus says, don't think that God will do what you want God to do. God is God. He is who he is, and he will do what he will do. He is always loving but he will always do what he will do. And so life in the kingdom of God is not always full of joy and ease. There's also a great deal of suffering. 
In fact, the theme of the Bible is that there is much to be gained through suffering. It is part of the deal. The wrecking ball has to come in at some point. Because if our foundation is shot, it's not loving for God not to do that. Not to wreck our lives completely and rebuild it from the ground up. So we have to be prepared for some suffering and trouble and pain to come along with the joy and the victory and the glory. And not a small number of people have walked away from the faith precisely because they weren't prepared for these failed expectations. I got a call a number of years back from someone who was uh, too, too old to have been involved in our ministry when I was here, but her younger brother was. And, and she said, hey, I'm, I'm worried about my brother. Um, and I said, what's going on? She said, well, he, he's done all this education and it's taken him all this time and he's gone into debt and he applied for this job and he knew he was perfect for this job and he didn't get the job. And, and he's, he's really mad and he's really frustrated and he's ready to, to throw his faith away. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. Because I knew this guy well, and I thought, really, that's all it takes? That's all it takes is just one failed job interview, and all of a sudden, how could you, God? Well, I think it had to do with these, these expectations and this idea that we are at the center, and what we want is what God has to give us. Well, God is God, and we are not. And it's not so much, I want you to hear this too, it's not so much that we have to lower our expectations of God. Absolutely not. It's more that we need to adjust our expectations so that they are about God rather than about us. God has to be at the center of our expectations and not us. So the expectations have to be, God, you will bring glory to yourself. God, you will work all things for good. And if I'm disappointed by what life brings, it's because probably I had myself at the center of the equation rather than God. It's because God didn't do what we thought rather than trusting in who God is for who He is, not who we want Him to be. It's totally normal, by the way, to, to have these failed expectations. Totally normal. Totally normal human response. Earlier in the passage, the passage that David preached on last week, John himself is having these, these questions. Are, are you the one, or, or should we expect someone else, something else? Because John's stuck in prison, and he's going, okay, I, I thought things were supposed to be different here. I thought if, if you're really the Messiah, why am I stuck in prison? Why aren't we ruling? Why, isn't, why aren't things looking differently? Even Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, he I know what I'm supposed to do, but God, I, I don't want to if there's any other way. It's normal, human response. We want what we think is best, but God needs to be at the center. C.S. Lewis talks about this concept, saying that at, at first, in our relationship with him, God will appear so close and so sweet, and that at some point that may fade. But that doesn't mean that God has forsaken us. It means that he's doing something in us. During those times, he says this. He says that the cause of the enemy, the cause of Satan, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do God's will, 
looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So when your expectations for God have been dashed, it doesn't mean that God has let you down. It means that you need to trust him like a little child and not like a brat. It starts with repentance and continues with the trust that God is God and we submit ourselves to his expectations and not to ours. Would you please pray with me? God, we thank you that you are so good and so loving. We thank you that we are living in a time where we experience things that even angels long to look into. And so, God, give us that perspective. Give us the perspective of trusting in you like a little child would. Having our expectations based on you, on the character of God, not on our own, own desires and wants. Help us to submit fully to you as our Lord as our King. Pray in your name. Amen.